Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that tells you that inspiration is only the first step on the path to production. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Chris Hawker invented the Power Squid, a multi-pronged power adapter that exploded the notion of the old power strip. It's designed for the modern age of power bricks and oversized adapters. Now, you might know him best from that, but with his Trident design, Chris and his team have created 70 products over 20 years. We've talked to a lot of first-time industrial designers and producers on this podcast who've taken advantage of new methods of funding and production, but Chris can give us some insight about what it's like to invent and produce over a fairly long period of time through a lot of revolutions that have come along the way. Chris, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Well, I bring up Power Squid because I think that's probably the thing that's most iconic in people's eyes, even though there's a number of other products you have in the market that people will know when you mention their name. The Power Squid, I encountered this as a Christmas gift, and there's something about it that was really self-evident. My mother-in-law gave it to me because she knows I'm a techie guy, and I have cords spread whenever I used to visit when they lived in the East Coast. I'd have cords spread out all over the house when I was there, and I looked at this thing and said – this is a totally self-evident idea. Why did no one do this before? But no one had thought of building something quite like this until it came out. I'd love to know a little bit about the genesis of the power squid as maybe like a microcosm of how you think about uh, this larger issue of industrial design and producing these sorts of products. Yeah. So the squid uh, originally occurred to me, uh, it, w- it was kind of in, in the middle of my career, actually. So it wasn't one of the first things that I'd done. I'd already brought several uh, products to market uh, of my ideas. So I was already kind of in this mode of, of inventing. And, and in fact, it, it started a company around that um, activity. But, but I had been focused primarily on some pet care products and guitar accessories. But one night I'm, I'm, I suffer from insomnia regularly. I, I have ideas running through my head. I can't sleep. So I'm, I'm downstairs in my family room sketching. And I look over and I see the, the mass of cords coming out of my uh, power strip at the time. And for some reason, I just had like a quick flash where it inverted. And I saw the uh, the cords coming out of the strip instead of coming into it. And like I was like, oh, I, I just saw something. So I quickly sketched it down. At the time, I, I labeled it power blossom because the cords were coming vertically out of it. And I was kind of my idea and and like one of the things I've learned as an inventor is is a lot of times you get these little flashes of little ideas and then they, they immediately leave your mind but uh, what separates I think the better inventors or the people who are able to ultimately make a career out of it in some ways is to spot those ones that flash across and they're like wait a second maybe there's a that idea is worth going into a little more and, and seeing if there's some legs to it so um, that one I, I had the idea and the first thought is that's a great idea. And the second thought is that's got to be out there already. Like no way did I just happen to come up, be the first person to come up with that. And in fact, I would strongly suspect I wasn't because you know the reason why I had the idea was because of all the power bricks. And before recently, not everyone had tons of power bricks. So the idea was kind of like right for someone to have it. I just happened to be the first guy who had it, who had a budding sort of like product development business and, and then went at it. Well, there's some specific details, too, with power, right, is that you – in order to – I mean, you have a lot of specific cabling requirements, manufacturer testing, the underwriter lab certification, if you want that. And then I know there's other groups in other countries. Are there particular difficulties that maybe deterred other people from getting into the the complexities of building something that supplied power like that? Yeah, the the power industry is heavily – regulated in certain ways, and then UL is, is certainly plays a major role in, in creating barriers to entry um, for high-voltage products like, like the power squid. High, not super high-voltage, but it's enough to give someone a good shock or burn down a house if it's not done right. So, I, you know, at the time, I, I went to my advisors and I said, advisors, should I try to build a company around this idea, assuming that no one else is already doing this? And they're like, no way. <laughs> Don't be crazy. I mean, I think I was like, uh, that was in 2001 uh, when I had the idea. So um, I guess I was 27. They're like, you have no idea what you'd be taking on to try to start that company. What we recommend is that you design it, file for a patent, and go try to license it. And at the time, I I didn't know what licensing was. I'd never even heard of this term. I brought a few uh, products out to market, but didn't really... You know, no one had been mentoring me and what the possibilities were. So licensing is when you basically lease to someone a patent or the intellectual property rights and you get paid a royalty on the back end for it. So instead of 
starting a company and producing the product yourself and having inventory and shipping stuff, you let someone else do all of that. And then they send you a percentage based on their sales. And so I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. They do all the work and I just collect money. And, you know, <laughs> what could be wrong with that? Well, it turns out easy to say, hard to do. I, I developed some prototypes and some marketing materials around it and, and went around to all the companies I could find who sold power strips like Belkin and Monster Cable and Triplite, Kensington, all of them. And they all said, no, you're crazy. No one will ever buy this. And I'm like, well, can't you see it? So obviously a better solution. And their answer was, yeah, but you can buy six outlets on a power strip oh. at Walmart for two ninety nine. Yeah, right, right. But. <laughs> but. Like, yeah, but you can only use three of the outlets, first of all. Second of all, who cares? This look, It looks different. And so, like, on the shelf, it's going to capture people's attention, and they're no longer paying for outlets. They're paying for a solution to the annoying problem of, like, the tangle of cords, trying to, you know, juggle the cords around so you can get your phone plugged in. It seems like, well, it seems like you found a, a, a fetching idea, too, is that even your first idea about it being like a blossom, and then it morphed into being a squid. I, I got a couple here in the house, and, and it's sort of, it's amusing. You look at it, and like, I know it's purely functional, and it's designed in a very functional way, but the fact that, it, you know, you say squid, and I can picture it, people look at it, it's got the different length cords, even, so that it's got that sense of tentacles, but, but you didn't sacrifice the utility for the sake of design, but the design you kind of emphasize an aspect of the design that lets people see that whimsy in it. Yeah. Well, and, and you're just actually describing exactly kind of the formula I've developed over the years for how do you like create hit products mm -hmm. predictably. <laughs> and it's what I call the perfect product pyramid. And uh, we can go through that a little later because it's an, an important part of, of how I have learned how to like turn ideas into money is this perfect product pyramid. And, uh, but it's design function and technology. The technology is like the big idea. What's the idea? Uh, a power strip with little cords coming out of it. The function is how is it executed? How does it actually you know, manifest? So, you know, the different length cords are so that the outlets don't stack up when they're, you know, when it's elongated, because if otherwise the outlets would all be in a row and then it would fan out. And so, uh, and also, as you're plugging things in, those things would bunch up. But, so the staggered cords actually enhance the functionality mm -hmm. yep. in addition to making it look better. It, do you know the story of the, the Tizio lamp by Richard Sapper? Uh, I, I'm familiar with the lamp. Well, I'm not sure. It, it's a classic story. It's a very interesting because I didn't realize how well it paralleled. What you're talking about is he had the idea. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's a, it's a double counterbalance uh, task lamp with a high-intensity uh, halogen bulb in it. It sells now. I'm finding it online for well over $500. It used to be a couple hundred dollars. Costs have gone up over the years. I've been Apparently, I've been undercharging for the powers. I think so. I think with that price. He invented this in uh, 1972 and it was. it's in you know the Museum of Modern Art collection. I was lucky enough in the late 80s to be in a design program uh, in Switzerland uh, for a summer and he was one of our teachers. And Sapper's, Sapper's designed, if you look up Richard Sapper again, I'll put notes. He's designed so many things. Lovely guy. Fantastic three-dimensional project we did with him. But he told us about the Tizio lamp, which was about 17 years old at the time, and it sold many, many millions of at the point. And he had that same inspiration. He was looking at an oil uh, a pump and was trying to figure out how to get good task lighting, and he realized there was an inspiration there. He made sketches. He starts working on the industrial design of it. He cannot find anybody who wants to make this, he tells us. And I think over the years that nobody wants to make its downplay because his manufacturer likes to point out how far <laughs> far seeing they were. But in the end, he uh, you know found a manufacturer who would work with him on it, who he could convince that this thing that was so obvious to him, this counterbalance thing, you can move the lamp to any position instead of these awkward swing arms that never stay where you want. And he brought into production, it's made, I'm sure, hundreds of millions of dollars over 40 years now. But that's that same thing where you found something self-evident, but it was hard to convince other people of the utility of it, even though to you it was obvious. And now when it hit the market, it's clearly obvious. I, I know you're a privately held company, but I see this everywhere. Everyone I know seems to have one. It's in all, you know, it's in major uh, outlets. So, uh, sorry, outlets for power, I know. But um, <laughs> but there must be a way in which you feel vindicated that what was obvious to you turns out to be obvious to the marketplace for its utility and, and marketing as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in the end, I went to the consumer electronics trade show in, in Las Vegas, and this was, you know, 
I was 27. I didn't know anything about anything. And I go to this massive trade show with all this noise. And I was walking around, visiting the people who'd already turned, you know, just desperate to like get someone to, to sign up for this product. Cause I got a lot invested in it emotionally as well as financially at this point. So I, uh, went and saw everyone everyone said no and i'm like literally walking out of the show dejected and i see like a booth over my shoulder and i'm like what's that power century i've never never heard of power century who's that and so i was like that sounds promising and so i walk over to this booth and turns out it's all power strips well it turns out they're owned by fiskers the scissors company mm -hmm. and they have no known brand but they happen to be the category captains at Walmart and Target because they're a very good execution company, if not a sexy brand. And so I'm like, oh, wow. Well, turns out they just had a brand new president, a guy named Mark Schaffner. And uh, Mark was all about innovation. And he's like, I'm going to do this product. So he, he signed up for the product um, after you know months of negotiation around the license, which is a whole, you know, a podcast in itself licensing agreements is an infinitely complex topic but um, so that was my first uh, licensed uh, you know product or since then I've licensed many products and, and they took the responsibility then to bring it to market and take all the liability and engineering inventory and sales and the product uh, came out and immediately went into Walmart and Target and then eventually Bed Bath & Beyond, Staples, Radio Shack, QVC, Sky Mall, every place and uh, and we had the great fortune in 2006 when the Consumer Electronics Show Best of Innovations Award. It's been on TV. Matt Lauer called it a genius on the Today Show. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it was really exciting, and and it did, uh, you know, reward us uh, nicely financially. And then, and so then I, I started pouring that money back into more inventions and, and trying to do stuff. And there's a lot of story backstory. And I actually wrote a. Uh, I wrote about it in a six-part article called "The Song of the Power Squid" for TechCrunch. Oh yeah, I'll put that in the uh, the show notes. I was reading, I was reading that, and uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a great power in the notion that you have an idea, you sit down, and then the long part between that and realizing something that comes to market, but that essentially the product, your conception of the product was right on and the details changed. But um, I, I always think about this with like the Harry Potter books that Rowling could, Joe Rowling could sit down in a cafe, start writing, I think, longhand, and that would turn into this. And, and you're describing something that's, you know, she had a publisher, she had a book, she found an agent, uh, editors, publishers, printers, and so forth. So this whole ecosystem that let her sell billions of copies or however many she sold. But what you're describing is actually doesn't sound, because of the licensing component, doesn't sound that far off from that role of an author sitting down and writing a book is is there a relationship between that between this conception as a designer when you're in the licensing business as opposed to the manufacturing part of it yeah absolutely in fact i use uh, publishing as a metaphor for what we do all the time because you know your typical inventor thinks they're going to create their product and especially today with kickstarter and alibaba giving people the ability to relatively easily produce their own products and try to sell them in the shelves but but our method is, is that I primarily focus on is licensing because if you're licensing the product, you end where someone who's going to start a company is really just beginning. Mm -hmm. You hand it off to someone else who's going to make it and send you checks. Now you lose some control, but the thing is, uh, you know, they take on all the burden and, and you can move on to inventing your next thing. So the way I, I look at it is like the inventors, myself included, are authors and the manufacturers are publishers. They've got the networks, they've got the shelf space. Getting a hook on the wall at Walmart is a, a life's work. You know, mm -hmm. like that in and of itself is something, I mean, it can be done, but it's your life's work. And is that really how you want to spend your life? I mean, not me personally, like that's horrible. And I've, <laughs> and I've gone down that path actually in the past. I was like, I should start making my own products and selling them. I could collect more margin, I could be in total control. And, uh, you know, for me, I learned quickly that that was sounded better than it was in practice because midnight calls with China and dealing with the whole China thing and, and all that was not what I really wanted to be doing with my time. What I wanted to be doing was creating and coming up with ideas, not just for, you know, for products and for businesses and business models and theories around how to be successful. That's a better usage of my time. So, so now my, the company that I've built today is like really, we're like an agency. 
and we've got all these authors who are people with ideas who don't necessarily know how to get them on the market. And then we've got all these companies who are on the market but are hungry for the next big thing. And on account of like the sort of the rise of open innovation and just innovation in general as a buzzword, companies are more and more open to getting ideas from outsiders. And it's become somewhat more and more uh, like form formalized. So before it's like anytime you try to license a product to a company, there wasn't enough history to make it real clear what to do. But so much of it's happened now that there's pretty standard royalty percentages and things move around a bit, but but the framework is, is pretty well established. And, and so it's become much easier for someone to do than it ever was before. I think that's really fascinating because we've talked, um, this podcast has, most of the people I've talked to before ha uh, who've made products, uh, some have been involved uh, previously in industrial design stages. So they've worked for other companies. Like we talked to Ali and Beth uh, Khalifa of uh, Gamel Design, uh, who I know you know, about um, their tea stick. And then uh, more recently, they've just funded a uh, coffee press, uh, the the Impress, just funded via Kickstarter. And they, they were designing for other people for a while. They got involved in understanding manufacture better. And then when they did the tea stick, that was pre-Kickstarter, um, you know, they had to self-fund it, but it, it was a big step for them. Uh, and they had to get into that whole understanding the manufacturing side, knowing that stuff was being made in China and so forth. But a more, more recently, uh, there's so many people, as you're saying, get involved uh, because of, say, 3D uh, tools that you can use very cheaply or free on a computer, cheap 3D printing through stuff you can buy, you know, cheap MakerBot kind of things you can buy yourself or service bureaus and then Kickstarter for funding. Like there's an explosion of that sort of thing. And we've I've talked several times now to people who came up with a product idea, they got it out there and then they had to deal with the vagaries and complexities of manufacturing, especially when their product was very successful and they had to make, mm. you know, sometimes 50 or 100 times as many as they originally planned. It seems like you've cut that whole part of the thing out of it and handed it off to specialists who are these companies are eager to get the ideas now, but you say this has changed. So in the past, would it have been, uh, I mean, over 20 years now that you've been creating products, this was a, a harder thing before, say, 10 plus years ago when you did the Power Square. This was a harder thing in the past to get companies interested in licensing products. They had a not invented here issue or and they wanted to be owning the entire product themselves. It was just kind of not that common. So people weren't sure how to react to it. And a lot of people just because it was you know, they weren't familiar with it. They just, it seemed risky. And there were all these, uh, there's bad stories about inventors suing companies. And so there's sort of like, uh, inventors had a bad name, mm -hmm. you know, the, the old fashioned garage tinker, paranoid guy who isn't using modern tools, you know, but who's like overly passionate about their product and has unrealistic expectations. And everyone thinks they've got a billion dollar idea. My God, like it's, <laughs> Billion dollar ideas uh, grow on trees. Apparently, the, the thing I say to people all the time is, "There's no such thing as million dollar idea. There just isn't. I've never seen it. Mm -hmm. There are million dollar executions, and so like it's all comes down to how you, how you actually you know roll the thing out. But but companies now, uh, Ag Lafley, the Procter and Gamble sort of like rocket launched the open innovation movement uh, when Procter and Gamble embraced it, and and so open innovation is a big buzzword and so it's out there big name people are talking about it and so it's trickling down from those people as well to, to smaller companies and so everyone's just more aware of the fact that they need innovation innovation is how you get ahead and they're they want to get ahead and there's a lot of evidence out there look at apple look at you know samsung all the people who are like really making the headlines are making headlines because of innovation and what does innovation mean you know, and then there's like, the, what's the difference between an invention and an innovation? I mean, I couldn't care less. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's a silly discussion, but an innovation is always like somehow improving the price value relationship. I mean, like if you're going to like boil it down, like somehow you're getting more for less or you're getting something that you couldn't get before. Oh, that's interesting. Is that on the consumer side? Is that the consumer feels like they're getting something amazing that's that regardless of the price, it seems more affordable to them or a better deal? Yeah, it's got a greater value density. Let's take a break to talk about one of our sponsors. 
You know, PDF is a great format, but if you want to do anything other than view a PDF file's contents, you have to spend a small fortune and master complicated software. Or you can turn to PDF Pen from Smile, a program that I've used for years. PDF Pen lets you make corrections, extract information, and erase parts of a file. You can perform optical character recognition to turn images embedded in the PDF into plain text. It's just 60 bucks. If you purchase it via the Mac App Store, you can store your documents in iCloud. You can also use PDF Pen to sign documents either by using a scanned signature or scribbling one with a mouse or touchpad. I've used it to annotate articles, delete unwanted pages, and optimize the file size of bloated PDFs created by other applications. But wait, if you need even more features, you can turn to PDF Pen Pro, which lets you add form fields that other people can fill out, convert websites into PDFs with working hyperlinks, and control document permissions for printing, editing, saving, and more. PDF Pen Pro is just $100. Both versions are a cinch to start using, and Smile has tutorials to help you take the greatest advantage. Go to smilesoftware.com and click on PDF Pen for more information and a free trial of the regular or pro versions. Now, back to the show. Yeah, didn't we see this in the, um, there's that weird transition that I, I swear I don't even know enough about this, and I should because I have kids, but there was this huge transition, as I understand it, with laundry detergent that... That uh, I don't remember which company discovered that you can make the. They started working those laundry pallets, um, and that seems to have taken over. It's transformed the industry because I think, as as you probably know, most laundry detergent in the past had tons of filler in it. It was made to look big and bulky, but a lot of it actually had no value. And when you get these higher speed uh, washing machines uh, now, they need uh, a different formulation. They need much less soap, and so there's a mismatch there. And then there's the issue of shipping and cost and so forth. So manufacturers are making denser and denser, you know, less filler, more concentrated soap. But then there's this entire new thing. It's this, it has a very different value proposition in the store of these like pellets and they're multicolored and they had to worry about kids eating them because they look too much like candy. There's this whole thing, but the market entirely shifted. I see this when I go to the, uh, you know, department store and, um, and look at this, but it was funny how that must have had that exact relationship that people feel like they're getting a better deal that the cost, the size, the shape, the color, it all says this is a better deal than the thing we had before. Right. Well, in the, in the, and the way you do that is in part price, you know, actually making things less expensive. But I think the biggest thing is by selling them more than just the function. So the pellets, you're, no, you're not just selling them less stuff that takes physically less space, but you're selling them convenience. You're selling them kind of an emotional experience of something that's slicker and more tidy and more like mechanical almost in a way you're not like scooping powder, which is kind of messy and, and all that. And so it, it adds a lot more value, even if the function is identical, even if you get clothes that are equally as clean, but you've through design, which is just like structured thought around a calculated experience. Mm. So like, what does design mean? I mean, there's a, like all these words that people use. And I like one of my exercises I like to do is like take these words and try to pick them apart. And like, what are they really, what is innovation really, you know? It's it's a greater value density. What is design really? Design is thought, nothing more. Like I want to design this thing. What does that mean? I want to think about it more. And to design it just means you're putting more thought into it than they used to. And the great thing about mass-produced items is like you only have to think about it once, and then all the value created through that thought gets reproduced over and over and over and mm. over and over. And so the more time you spend perfecting that first thing. You, you get that value every time you spit another unit out of, of whatever production process you've created. So it's a relatively small upfront investment to say, spend a hundred more hours thinking about the user experience than to not spend that hundred hours. But then ultimately you're going to spend the equivalent of like millions of hours producing these things. Mm -hmm. So like just a little more upfront investment can dramatically impact a, how many of you, you get to sell because it's, you're impacting the user by giving a more valuable experience because you only had to build the value once and now it replicates. And so that's the power of design and why design is taking over is, you know, but then people are like, well, what is design? And well, what's this thought? Cause you can design anything. You can put more thought into more aspects and we're adding more aspects to be considered. Like before people were like, okay, the detergent works. It goes in the machine and it does what it does chemically. So 
we can put more thought into it. Like, well, how is that delivered and how is the consumer experience? If you didn't ask that question before, then you weren't going to get an answer. Wasn't this the history of OXO, OXO, that to some extent was that it felt like, I mean, they're now a well-established and long-running company, but when they, the first things they came out with, they're like, you know, a potato peeler is a really hard thing to use. Has anyone ever really thought about what kind of grip would actually be useful on a potato peeler instead of making the same handle has been made? But I assume there were also advances in material and production and in, uh, injection molding that made that possible. Is, is, am I right? Is OXO one of the companies sort of saw through the function to come up with a, a new idea that then, again, became – it seems self-evident looking at it, but it, there was this long history of making stuff the same way over and over again. Are they, are they a good example of that? Oh, absolutely. They they were the ones who really introduced the mass market to the concept of ergonomics. Like, mm-hmm. what is ergonomics? You know, it's like such a big buzzword as well. And it's and it's design, consi- you know, which is thought. And the thing you're considering is the human in the equation and how the thing is going to fit their organic body instead of an old-fashioned <laughs> potato peeler with like a little metal handle that you can technically grip. But it's not – and so, phys- you know – Technically, it works, but it's not considering the human in it who's suffering because of things biting into their hand. And so just that's the simple observation of like building around the human rather than just building around the function. And so that's what ergonomics is, is just thought applied to the human context of objects. And so... Did you need improvements in manufacturing process, though, I wonder? Because I think I've, there's a show I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, How It's Made, that I watch with my kids that I love. Oh, I love that yeah. show. Oh, yeah. oh, and it's fascinating to me because it reveals to me – my, my observation of the show is that I can never typically predict whether a human being is going to do something – in some cases, a human being, a robot – or a machine. And I've now understood much more the difference between robotics and machine produced parts. And you'll see something and sometimes they'll be making a pair of vice grips and it will involve, you know, all three of those things. A robot will be doing something. You'll be like, oh, I see that. Then a whole, then there'll be a press that is operated by a person. And then that part gets picked out by a robotic arm that then does this other treatment. And, but my reaction watching it is that it seems that impact of improvements in manufacturing that provide more flexibility must have an impact on, as I look through your products, I'll put up links to your site, of course, but Trident Design, some of the stuff that you've developed, a lot of what you've developed has this organic feel. It's things that involve clearly, I mean, there's there's metallurgy involved, but also a lot of pl- molded plastic or rubber parts. It, is that so new? Is that why, I mean, I know Apple came out with the, their big thing was they used translucent plastic on a computer or at the iMac that had only been used for like a vacuum cleaner before. But are there other improvements in say the last 15 years in how you can make these injection molded or other shaped products that, that have helped transform what we're seeing in the consumer marketplace? Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of people point to 3D printing as, as a big thing, but what preceded 3D printing was actually the rise of uh, 3D modeling software so you know once upon a time to make an injection mold someone sat down at a drafting table with a bunch of pencils and rulers protractors and drew stuff out by hand and if you look at these old things i mean i've seen uh, recently i was up at a place and i saw some blueprints for uh, an automobile parts that were like old-fashioned draftsman blueprints and you're like oh my god like the amount of craftsmanship and skill that was required to create these things and the amount of hours that went into creating these blueprints was just, I mean, it's inconceivable. I'm just a little bit older than you, not very much. And I'm in high school. I actually took a drafting course. We made blueprints and um, it affected my entire life, I think, because it made you understand how much thought went into just things like how do you do a 2D orthographic view at 30 degree angle of a 3D object and you know we did very simple stuff and it was and but it was it was wonderful it gave you that x-ray vision to how things work but right but that was the process for the entire history of manufacturing until until this rise of software right and so you were just once you created something the, the cost to iterate it and to try something else was like extremely high and so like now with with 3D software, you could model it on the screen and, and 
and you could like, oh, I want to change that, and you could just change it, you know, <laughs> like on the screen. <laughs> Drag and drop, and and the the drop in price, and we talked about that a little bit earlier, but uh, that was uh, the Glyph folks, for instance. The reason Studio Neat, part of the reason they were able to do it is they didn't need a five hundred or five thousand dollar package. They were able to use a beta version of Rhino for Mac for free, and you've got SketchUp from Google, and I mean, some of these aren't scalable for really doing CAD CAM work and driving stuff, but there's there's ready access to software for free. But as you say, so people were doing, you know, making these models, they'd be doing blueprints, people would be, I mean, I've heard or talked to folks who do manufacturing in China, there's still an enormous amount of handwork that can go into injection molding. But um, but there had to be, the, what was the next part? I mean, you had 3D software, but was it CNC routing? Did that also make it possible to create these molds that much more flexibly than like a human being could do? Yeah, well, that and I mean, first having the CNC also enabled you to then now you had a, a computer model, you could CNC a prototype. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having to pay a machinist to interpret your hand-drawn pencil drawings, I mean, imagine. And so you're just kind of stuck with what you've got. And now it's like, oh, now we can make an iteration. Now maybe it costs $5,000 to machine the part, but that's a lot less than creating a mold based on a drawing. And then... So the machining came and then 3D printing comes and suddenly, holy crap, I can iterate 50 times. And, and OXO was like, to briefly return to that, yeah. he's like at the, he was like at the forefront. If it wasn't him, it would have, that was Sam Farber, by the way, founder mm -hmm. of Farber, but if it wasn't him, it would have been someone else. Just like if it wasn't me on the squid, it would have been someone else. It was the idea whose time had come. And so like, Sam Farber just happened to be the first guy in the right position to take advantage of the thought of like, oh, there's something else I could do here. And, you know, having the ability then to go through a few iterations pretty quickly and affordably and finding the right handle shape that's going to make a big difference. And so now, today, the huge advantage we have in terms of product development, as opposed to like getting that product out into the market itself, but is, is how many iterations you can do. First, you can start off with iterations in your brain, and then you can start iterating on a pencil, and you can iterate on a computer screen, and then you can get a prototype printed, and then you can go through 10 iterations of a prototype, and you can really get things dialed in amazingly well. And whereas before we had to live with things that hadn't been iterated 100 times, in their development process in order to work out every kink. You just had to kind of live with the best they got after five iterations because now they can do 100 in the time that it used to take them to do five. You know, so the product is going to be so much better. You know, what's interesting, too, is I talked to um, Bunny Huang, uh, who's uh, the inventor of the Chumbi, and I'm gonna, he'll be on a future podcast. Uh, he grew up in America and now lives in Singapore, and he goes to China all the time to work on products and to sort of scope out the electronics there. And the iteration thing is fascinating because you had mentioned at one point and in some of the articles you've written how that um, this turnaround time with China is very difficult. You know, there's there are advantages now if you can do 3D printing and you can do manufacture of some stuff in the U.S. that closes down that cycle time. You can go faster. And Bunny is on the other side of it where he has been in shops. He's worked with products where there's these guys who are doing injection molding. He says the parts come hot out of the injection mold. He can touch it in his hands. If there's a problem, a guy pulls out a tool and two hours later, they're back on the line. So, but they're doing that iteration thing in real time because he's, he's there on the spot, but it still involves, you know, they, they go through all the tests ahead of time. They go through the prototype and then you still get to that final stage and you could see time blossom out into long periods. If you were here in America and trying to do that, two or four week turnaround to get things, even though they could do it instantly in China, getting the part here, getting it back, talking to people there and going back and forth. Uh, but you still, but iteration still seems to be this critical component in getting these parts uh, just right. Right. And, and the thing is, the consumer's expectation level just keeps ratcheting up and up and up. I mean, we if you get old stuff and people are like, well, they don't make things like they used to. And, and that's certainly true. They used to build things at a higher level of quality, which meant you paid a larger percentage of your income in order to acquire them ultimately. And people just had less stuff, but they also weren't able to go through this iterative process. And so almost anything you buy today is going to be vastly superior in terms of its design if not necessarily its quality on account of that iterative process. But then getting into China and, and getting things produced, that's a whole other uh, can of worms. That, that, <laughs> well, you know, we, we could talk about a little in terms of, uh, you know, we talked about licensing and, and, and like how do you, you know, what's, you know, should I license my idea or, or 
should I try to build a company and, and what's appropriate for either and what, what am I looking at there? Well, I, I like to cycle back to something about the, you know, the things used to be made better. There was this issue in time, and you still see this in some parts of the world, where hand labor was very, very cheap compared to mechanical labor because the, the tooling cost was hard to make things. We didn't have, you know, robots can be reprogrammed. Those have dropped. That's changed in manufacturing as I read like every day. But I think back to a time, um, uh, I went to school in Connecticut, the school I went to had, uh, was completely carved, right? In the, in the early 1900s, there were, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, Yale University, there were, I think it was a thousand registered stonemasons in 1930. And then, you know, and, and the handwork labor was cheap relative to productivity and the rest of the economy. You could afford it. And I think about the amount of, Handwork where you, if you look at something that's old and you think this was extremely well made, it's how many hundreds or thousands of hours of people's time went in to make it have that feel. Stuff that looks cheaply made in that kind of transition manufacturing period where it was made by molds and machines and less handwork. Even if you go back and look at the original iPod, it looks kind of terrible. The fit and finish is good, but you would never accept a product that looked like that 12 years later. But I want to ask something because you have a very personal knowledge of this. Is You know, I, I, you told me before the podcast that you're a trained luthier. You, were, you went to guitar making school between your first business at 16, which you're making aquarium products. And you went to guitar building school, and then I can still see you make guitar accessories from your current company. I would love to know how much having that experience of working with your hands and those processes that take dozens, hundreds, thousands of hours even, how that's affected how you conceive of and develop products that are mass-produced. Let's take a break to talk about sponsorship. You know, I call the folks who financially underwrite these podcasts sponsors, not advertisers. It's not a euphemism. Rather, we try to find a good fit between the message of the new disruptors and the folks who want to help pay for the costs of its production and distribution. I try to test or use all the products and services that I tell you about because I want to know that it's a good offering and a good fit. It should be something useful for listeners that I know will help you in your entrepreneurship or general business or personal lives. Likewise, I don't want a sponsor to think that they are reaching the right group of people with their message when they aren't. If you'd like to reach the good-looking, intelligent, and clever listeners of The New Disruptors, we have some sponsorship slots open in future episodes. Go to podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G dot com, to reach Lex Friedman, who handles sponsorships for the show, and who co-hosts his own excellent program, Unprofessional. Thanks to our sponsors and to you, dear listener, for making this show possible. And now, back to the podcast. The thing about uh, guitars is that, you know, people love them. Mm. So, like, how many products, how many things that you buy at the store do you grow to love? And why? You know, so, like, you don't necessarily love uh, your suitcase or love your <laughs> keyboard. Like, you might appreciate it. But, like, so the guitar, I, I play guitar, and so I was, that's what attracted me to, to go to guitar building school on the Roberto Venn School of Luthery in uh Phoenix, Arizona, Tempe, actually. And at the time, it was just sort of getting started with my product business and, and uh, wasn't sure where I was headed yet. So that was one thought was I built guitars for a living. And uh, I learned at the school that I didn't want to do that for a living. So <laughs> right. Basically, like you're a cabinet maker who makes less money and works with more hazardous materials. Uh, and, and a few people make really good money at it, but it's, it's, it's like equivalent to being a musician and a lot more people starve doing it than make good money. You must also have to have this incredible, not just the attention to detail, but that, um, the, the mind that lets you work on one thing continuously for hundreds of hours and that sort of focus on one object must be a very particular kind of person can, can do that too. Yeah. It's, it's really a career for craftsmen, mm -hmm. like not like your stonemasons, not your, uh, I'm not an artist necessarily, and I was I'm more on, on that side. But but one of the things that really fascinated me about guitars and, and why I was into it um, from a product standpoint is like here, you know, physical objects that people develop an emotional attachment to. Hmm. And and actually, uh, my my background, I graduated from Ohio State University with a degree in comparative religion, and one of the things that I really found interesting and, and studied there was meaning and like how, what fascinated me about religion was like, how do people drive meaning in their lives? Cause you know, I was interested in how to make my own life meaningful and help other people to make theirs meaningful. And then I went to this guitar building school and had the same 
sort of uh, intuition about this, these guitars as being objects that people found meaningful. And so when I started developing products like the Power Squid, I'm like, it's just a piece of plastic. <laughs> right. But, but how can you try to make a physical product that gives people an emotional reaction? And what is it uh, you know, about some things like an iPod or an iPhone that causes people to be passionate? and causes people to become attached to it more so than you would necessarily expect mm -hmm. for, the, for that type of product. So like we didn't used to get attached to phones, but someone figured out a way, Jonathan Ive, I guess, to uh, make a physical thing that got you know people quite impassioned. That, that wasn't a, a piece of art, but it was a mass produced product. And, and so I uh, have sort of made it my mission to sort of dissect that and, and be able to predictably do that and uh, and, it, and you're able to do it fairly predictably, and, and it's actually not a whole bunch of steps. It's, it's one step. It's like as I'm designing this thing, I want it to evoke an emotion, mm -hmm. and then as as you're designing it, and that sort of uh, is informing all of your decisions, then you're making the decision about what curves to get or why to make it look like this or why to call it a squid instead of just have it be a block with extension cords come out of it you know it would have the exact same function if it was square so why did we call it the power squid and not the power multiplier because we wanted people to be like oh that's cool and if anyone finds it someone catches a squid a giant squid in the wild that's international front page <laughs> news you know people are fascinated by squid they're like somehow alien and futuristic and uh and like when we were working on the power squid i first trying to come up with a name i was imagining like two guys on a space station working in the space station in the deep in the future and, and then one guy's like tells the other guy hey toss me that blank <laughs> and i'm like and that's where the name came out toss me that squid oh that's oh great. yeah and and so this is like one of the ways in which we you know that intent to create emotional engagement one of the like specific tactics we use is like imagine the world where the product occurs, the, that perfect world where the product occurs and you like you walk into your kitchen and the cup of coffee is magically waiting for you and it came out of a machine that looked like this and it, and then the machine appears fully formed. Not that you like started from nothing and try to build it. You imagine the scenario in which this amazing emotionally evocative device occurs and then you see it in that environment and then it and it shapes it and part of that environment is, is the emotional reaction you're trying to create so it's kind of like guiding from the end result your design process and it's a, it's a little uh you know abstract maybe but it works and we've had a lot of products have that same kind of success our, our onion goggles for example uh simple idea goggles they don't cry when chop onions. This is a, a fascinating thing is it reminds me, uh, I'm trying not, I'm trying not to be pretentious, but it reminds me of an art history class I took. Since you make guitars, I can talk about art history, I think, safely. It's, it's um, uh, Vince Scully was this great art history professor at Yale for decades and decades. And he wrote these books that influenced generations of, of art historians. Um, and he himself was trained by French archaeologists, this unbroken chain of sort of how you look at the things people made. And he had this lecture once in which he talked about the Venus of Willendorf, which is this, um, it's, I it was a 20, yeah, 29,000 BCE uh, sculpture. And he talked about how you think about the weight of this sculpture, the form of it, this sort of fertility image, how it would feel in your hand. And I thought, I'd never heard an art history professor talk about the touch of art, because this was a practical object, whether it was shamanistic or otherwise. And he said, think about the heft of that and what that meant to them. And I think there's a direct connection. When I look at your – I could visualize it. You can look at the object and think about what it feels without ever touching it. You're not going to go and break it in the museum and do it. But this is the thing, I think, the genius of Steve Jobs. There's, there's the book written by fake Steve Jobs. Uh, it was a, a Forbes writer um, called uh, – I forget, Options or something. And the book is, is actually entertaining. But there's something he captures in there that is not – a precise real experience Jobs had. But, you know, Jobs went to India at one point, came back. The book captures a sort of imagined scenario in which he says he realizes the kind of spiritualism and sensation people have, how he could bring that into material goods. And he sort of did that. And when I look at, I recommend listeners go to the Trident Design 
product page, you can look through your products and all of them have a feel. I have a physical feel when I look at it, even though I've only touched, I think, one of the things on this page. So it seems to me you've captured that sense of um, like the tactile, real nature. And they also have, almost all of them have, I mean, some of them are slightly more practical, I would say. So they don't have this, but most of them have a little bit of sense of whimsy or charm. So it goes beyond, these are not engineered products that are designed to be the most possible functional thing. They can be extremely utilitarian and functional, but you've managed to put whimsy on top of that so that even looking at them, I have a sense that these are enjoyable things. They're attractive to me because I can feel them in my mind and I can enjoy even just looking at them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, we've done our job. That's exactly <laughs> where, and, and, and one of those things is every one of them is a celebration. Mm-hmm. It's a celebration of power delivery. It's a celebration of not crying when you chop onions. And so if you're like, okay, I'm going to solve the problem of crying when you chop onions and you treat it very functionally. And it's not a celebration of that. You end up with uh, chemistry goggles and chemistry goggles are ugly and no one cares about them. And, and they don't create an emotional reaction, but they will get the job done just as well. And in fact, they'll fit over your glasses. And so they'll you know, be better than our onion goggles, potentially. But the onion goggles, we wanted to create something new, something that were like superhero goggles. So you put them on and you felt like you were getting into costume. And so that when you used them, it made a statement. And the funny thing about the onion goggles, I mean, there's, they're a silly item. And, and if you read you know, people on their blogs have railed about them being the ultimate crime monotasker. <laughs> but if you go to Amazon.com, they got 240 reviews, most of which are five stars because they work. If they fit you and a few people, they don't fit. Sorry. Oh, this is like, you know, the OpenX. This is the best thing. I know there's competitors now, but the uh, this thing called OpenX that opens a uh, uh, yellow handled thing with a knife blade that opens um, plastic clamshell stuff. I saw, I think Inc. Magazine wrote about it or Inc. Entrepreneur Edition years ago. I have bought so many of these things because uh, it is the best thing in the world. I have tons of box cutters and knives. I have everything I can imagine in the house. But this one thing has made my uh, – it's it's single purpose. I get something that's in plastic and I want to open it. It is the best single tool I've ever purchased. And I, I keep buying them for other people too. And, and that's the same thing that's exactly what's like driven the onion goggles and uh, – their gift. Yes. Most people buy them as a gift for people <laughs> who have, who like to cook and have everything. But uh, they've also been on like dozens of television shows. They were on the Modern Family. The, uh, I have a picture of myself next to the TV. I'm wearing my <laughs> onion goggles. And so is Al Bundy. And uh, and that was not paid placement. I'm assuming, right? That's just some no. set dresser liked it. Thought it was a perfect match for him. And they, they actually built a whole scene around the front. Oh my god, you were and in the so scene. Happy. Oh, it was amazing. So <laughs> Phil, Phil, the character Phil is wearing them, and then Al Bundy comes in. He goes, what the hell is that? And Phil's like, onion goggles. No more crying when I chop onions. Oh Welcome to the future. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you got like $2 million worth of free advertising. It's very nice or, or more. Better than that. Better than that. Yeah. They used that line as the, uh, as the promotional clip. Oh, my goodness. You can't ask, but that's vindication that you came up with something. I mean, I know there's a little bit of under undercurrent of for them of like making fun too, but they showed it in its intended use. They weren't making fun of the product; they're sort of making fun of the person, you know, a little bit. But it's like that's vindication for you that what you created was so self evidently useful that they had they just incorporated. It. It's part of the air. It's like oh, onion goggles, right? And and it's just a uh, and and they're done in a fun way, and they're very high quality. They're like they could have been done for three dollars. They're twenty dollars. They work very well and they're nicely made so like steve jobs of course you know the great uh, you know teacher for so many things probably but uh, one of them is like great products almost always do well mediocre products sometimes do well and most of the time don't but really truly great products almost always do well and so like what's a great product like one that's just really executed with excellence at every level and, and just to touch back on that perfect product pyramid. So you got all these inventors. You're going to do Kickstarter. You're going to do, you're going to try to license your product. Whatever it is, you've got an idea and you want to turn it into a, a success. And, and, and one way or the other, you got to turn that idea into a product. It can't just be an idea because no one's interested in your idea. You have to wrap it in value in order to sell that value. And that value is research that mitigates risk by proving that there aren't other things out there. Or at least you have knowledge of your types of competitors. And then 
embodying the idea in a, in a product design, which is using an industrial design firm, or if you're a designer yourself, designing it into something tangible and a working prototype, and then logos and other things that make the thing seem real. Like if you're going to license it in particular, which is kind of my you know, forte in inventing, is like you want to create as much of the illusion of reality as possible, but you don't actually have to make it real. You just have to make it look. <laughs> close to it. So that, I'd like to talk, actually, as we, as we finish, I'd love to talk about that aspect. Is I know that uh, you've got a number of products to your own name that your company, your team has developed internally in a 20-year history of, of, all, of all this stuff. You can go to the site and look at all the things that you, you guys have made, too. But that your current business, you talked earlier about being also like an agency. And I know that all the tools that are out there now freed people up to do this. They can use 3D design programs. They can test out their ideas. Now with Arduino, you can make, you know, embedded products. There's so many things that people can do today to, to bring, to, to really get an idea much closer to fruition. So I've got an idea and I might be facing something like, you know, should I go to crowdfunding? Should I, you know, go to work for a manufacturer and sell them my idea? Should I start a company and do friends and family thing? You have a model in there too, where people have something that's sort of fully realized, they come to you and pay a fee. And then what's, what's your role when they come to you to get you to consult with them on a product? Well, actually for someone to bring us a product and have us evaluated is, is free. Mm. So, you know, we'll take a, take a look at anyone's stuff and tell them oh, that's you know, what we think. Mm -hmm. And that's just because, uh, you know, I don't want, someone to pay me for me to tell them that they don't have anything, but that doesn't take, <laughs> that's very that nice. doesn't take a lot of people don't mind that. So that's very nice. Of you, actually. <laughs> well, it doesn't take long usually to know if it's like just not an option. And, and then the next thing is, uh, you know, they pay a small fee, 800 bucks and we do a validation search and we do patent research awesome. and market research and then give them back like a, a nicely illustrated report, walk them through it and then give them a patent one one education. So that's kind of like your validation part. And then we do, a design portion where we get the product ready for marketing and, and that's based on a, a fee. And if they bring us a product, if they're a designer and the product's already done, then they don't need to pay us anything there really. Um, some people come and they're a police officer with an idea or a, you know, a journalist with an idea and they don't have that ability to execute it and we can take through that process. And, you know, projects might cost between 5,000 and $50,000, depending on the complexity. You've got all the expertise there. I mean, we were talking about this before the podcast. It's like there's those infomercials people are used to that are anybody with an idea can make something, but you're you're weeding folks out in that first stage. You're saying, you know, this is really, this isn't going to fly. You're not bringing people in to charge the money and, and convince them that they're inventors. You're looking at stuff that's viable before you'll even go down that road. Yeah, we're a boutique and, you know, we're, we're not a volume game at all. I mean, we we're, and we're trying to do a lot of inventions, but I think, you know, at any given time, we're probably working on 10 to 15 different live projects. And I think we've got like 30 or so products that we're currently actively trying to license. And we've licensed eight or nine so far this year. So, I mean, this is, you got to be highly selective about what you're trying to go out there with. So we don't want to waste our time or anyone else's time. So, you know, we, we pick the ones that we think are winners for us. Not every product that we you know, that we don't choose doesn't mean it's not a good idea. It's just got to work with our system and how we do things. And, and we got to match with the, uh, the inventor. And some of our inventors are not people. They're companies with technology. Like we don't just work with independents. We also work with corporations who have ideas and do a matchmaking kind of process where we match technologies to people who can use them. And then so once an idea is ready, either through our efforts or someone else's efforts and is, is licensable, ready and, and has a patent pending because that's the key to entry. We don't do that. We have people we can refer people to, but you know, the, the ticket to ride basically for licensing is you got to have a patent pending. The patent itself doesn't have any value. It's the deed to your property. Mm -hmm. So you got to build value in the property and then you got to get that deed and then you can go out and try to lease the property. You're making a lot of people listening happy because you're defining the opposite of the patent troll market out there, which is which is slowly with the recent Obama administration executive orders is slowly getting eroded and may, you know eventually action will be taken and the patent troll market will disappear. You're describing making things that are unique inventions that have lasting value that are intended to go into production. What the patent process was designed for. Yeah, and you've got to like actually – the difference between unsuccessful inventors and successful ones is that successful ones develop the product as though they were a company that produced products 
as opposed to thinking that as some sort of lottery. Mm -hmm. Like it's a real business and you succeed by creating value and delivering value to people. That's how it works. And that sometimes there's people are the consumers and other people in the value chain, like the person you're licensed to give a company a way to make a lot of money, then they're interested if, if you know, and, and they're not evaluating things based on, uh, you know, your words, they're making their own assessments. So you got to show them the value. If they see the value, and it's your job to show them the value. And if they didn't see the value, that's not their fault. That's your fault. You got to show it to them. And that's why we do a kind of like a front end, heavier development, but it's like go big or go home. Like the half-assed approaches just don't work. And the thought that you can just sell an idea without building value around it. I mean, maybe there's a way to do it, but it's not predictable. Like if you're selling real concrete value, you can almost always buy, find someone who's willing to buy it at some price. And maybe not as much as you hope for, but if there's real value there, someone will take it off your hands uh, eventually. And so, uh, and so on that note, then like we, the other half of our business is the commercialization side. So the front half is developing and the back half is actually getting it onto the market. And for that, uh, what we do is we identify companies who could produce the product and then figure out ways through, a, you know, often dramatic effort to get opportunities to present products. But uh, it takes a lot of time. I mean, it may take sometimes 50, outreaches to get a hold of the right person at a company to get a chance to present. But that's the kind of just dogged persistence it takes to make it happen. And if you get that opportunity to present to them, again, you, you don't get a second chance. That's why you got to show up ready to win the first time with a great looking product that, that when you show it to the person, mm -hmm. only thing that works 100%, only thing that works is love at first sight. Huh. They have to see it and be like, holy shit, I want that. I want that as a consumer. I don't even want that for my company. I just want that. Whatever it is. That new fly swatter you showed me, holy crap, that is so cool. I need that. And then and then they're like, yeah, I'd love to license that for my company. But if, if you show them something and you're like, let me explain how this is cool to you, you already lost. If you have to explain that it's cool, because to get someone to license something, you're asking them to like take on your idea. Of, of course, they're more interested in their own. Now, if you're yeah. committed to producing the product yourself, you're like, well, I'm going to make, uh, build a company and, and build the product, then you still need that reaction because the buyer at the retailer is the same way. Right. And the consumer at the retail level is the same way. Like, you got to design products that people are going to want, and they're going to want them not just based on what it does, but how it does it. You win with style and by blowing away their expectations. This is where Kickstarter, often the focus is on the successful stuff, and only about half the projects that Kickstarter fund, and you look at the Ulcerans, and you can see that people didn't necessarily fall in love with that. They fell in love with the pebble, but not something that was pebble-like and wasn't as compelling. All right, so I have one final question for you. Because you see so much of the stuff that's coming through, you're kind of uh, tapped into the arterial vein of what's coming through people's minds as they design things, as well as your own explorations. Is there some new kind of thing, some new category or approach that we're going to start seeing in the next year, five years, 10 years that you're seeing glimmerings of, or is it really are we in a mature phase in which things are being perfected? Oh, no. I've got one, one area in particular where I'll, I'll, I'll predict the growth Ooh. is in, this is a, Emotional technology. Mm. That's the next. That's the next big thing. And uh, right now, everything's been about function, and we're starting to see the first glimmering of, of this type of development. But but technology that's actually emotionally rich. So how do we actually really get back to that guitar level emotional connection through objects? And how do objects actually enhance our social lives? So I, I, I call them social objects. Um, I'm working on the ideal terminology here still for it, but there's like emotional technologies is I think the, uh, the next frontier. Oh, that's fascinating. What's an example of that? Does anything exist in that category at the moment? Uh, you know, there was a Kickstarter project that failed to get funded. That was a, a house that was like a little lamp. And then you could like, if you turned on yours, then there were little miniature lamp <laughs> versions of it that you would have oh, your like sweet. friends. Have. Yeah. Like, if you turned off yours, they all turned off. Oh, I have this thing sitting behind me on a shelf called the Nasbag tag. Did you ever see this? Nabaz. Nabaz tag, yeah. That was that was that kind of thing, too. I'll, I'll put a picture in the show notes. It's It was, you could move the ears on this bunny kind of thing, this sort of uh, abstracted bunny, and it would move the ears in a friend's bunny, or you could 
talk to it and it would send messages to your friends' bunnies. It was very interesting. Yeah, no, I, the Nabez tag is uh, is definitely right there. And I think, and, and we're actually working on our own uh, device right now that I think is the next step, you know, yet um, on that. But I think it's part of a, I'm going to say it's the crest of a wave that people aren't even seeing yet, but that's, oh, that's where cool. I see things. Head. I'll have to talk to, when I talked to Bunny Huang, he, because the Chumbi was in that category too. I wasn't quite as uh, interactive, I think, but it was along those lines. Well, you're giving us a glimpse of the future, and we'll, we'll keep talking about it. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about This is a whole area in which I feel we haven't explored yet. And, and thanks for, for telling us about how, how you work and how this whole segment of the industry works. This was just great. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. I, I've really enjoyed it. So great, great podcast. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.